Right. The book of Exodus, we begin a series that will take us all the way up to Advent, and uh, we are going to be in here for the, the, the fall of 2012. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, will you join me in prayer as we come before God's Word? Our Father, you have brought us to this moment in this service where you now must speak to us in a way that you un- unveil to us the the blindness and deafness of our experience, that you would break through and we could hear you, and it would be good and joyful and um, beautiful and rich. Father, thank you that when you speak to us and when you open our eyes and and when you open our ears to, to see and to hear, Father, you make us alive. We come to life. Bring your power. Father, bring your glory. Show us yourself. In Christ's name we pray, amen. When you think about your life and the earliest memories, uh, you probably have an earliest memory in your mind. Um, I tend to think that's when my story began, right? Um, And it makes sense to think that way. Um, And then there's stories as they go. There's a beginning, middle, and then there's a, well, that part that we don't talk about, right? Beginning, middle, and end. That tends to go with our lives, right? There's a there's a way we think about our lives, and um, I guess most of us are, are in the middle of our lives, or we're, we're somewhere in that great, great thing we call our lives, the story of our life. Don't you like stories? I love stories. Uh, we've been made for stories. Um, our God has given us stories. There's an influential uh, Christian writer named Michael Green, and he writes these words. He says, the Bible is a story, and it contains within its grand meta-narrative, the big, big narrative, many, many smaller stories. Essentially, the Bible is one story, the story of God's romance with the world, God's unquenchable and gratuitous love for mankind. As a story, it has a beginning, middle, and end. Because the biblical, it is going somewhere, it is also taking us with it. Listen to that. Because the biblical story is the grand story of who we are, who the God we are dealing with is, and what it all means. It is a story that enfolds our stories in a grander narrative. I can't think of a better way to launch the this series on the book of Exodus than the idea that we are part of this great grand story. One way to think about a story is not just a beginning, middle, and end, but the story of God's big plan looks like this. Creation, God's good creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Then Genesis 3, something happens that we call the fall. So creation, fall, And then even in Genesis 3, we have the promise of redemption. So stage 3 is redemption, creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation. When the new heavens and the new earth are part of our experience forever and ever. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So I'm going to keep reminding you of those four main things. Those are the big plot lines of the story that you are in. Now, this is an extraordinary passage here, Genesis 1 and 2, and it's also, excuse me, Exodus 1 and 2, and it's also often overlooked. We're dealing with God's promise to Abraham, which starts in Genesis 12, 
And God promised to this man who had no son that he would have many, many sons and he had many, many daughters. In fact, they would be beyond counting. And God told Abraham, come out, look at the stars in the sky in the, sky, in the heavens, and look at the sand on the sea. So shall your descendants be. And God takes this uh, man who was uh, essentially a moon worshiper, Abraham, and he makes him into a father, the father of faith for both Jews and Gentiles, because through Abraham, God is going to bless the world with a redeemer. And the promise is going to go through Abraham. And so what we find here is that we are now dealing with God's promise to multiply to Abraham a people And that is fulfilled in in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. You see there that uh, the the Jewish people, we refer to them as the children of Israel, they are in Egypt. And uh, they are multiplying, and God is blessing them because he promised to Abraham he would do this. And we know the story that they end up in uh, Egypt because of uh, one of Jacob's sons, his name is Joseph, and Joseph is... uh, ill-treated by his brothers and sold off to some, some traveling Bedouins, and they end up down in Egypt, and he's sold as a slave, and then Joseph sort of weasels his way all the way up into the highest ranks of Egyptian society. Joseph is, is a ruler in, e- in Egypt, and then his brothers come looking for food, and Joseph gives them food and shelter, and Egypt becomes the place where Abraham's people begin to multiply and grow, and now we're 430 years later in the narrative, in the story. 430 years later, and there's a pivotal key moment in this drama of of Exodus chapter 1. There is verse 8, and there arises, uh, there arose a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And the idea is probably that he came from another region in Egypt, and he comes into power and he notices all these people who are uh, Hebrews, and he is threatened by their, their sheer numbers. And he begins to imagine what might happen if they turned against him, or an, a, an invading enemy would use them as a, as a force to, to fight against Egypt. So his mind, this new king, we, we'll, we'll kind of figure out what Pharaoh this might have been, but um, there's some speculation. But we refer to him as a king or Pharaoh. And uh, this new situation now sets up a real, real troubling scenario. This guy's kind of a maniac, and he's, he's, uh, he's, he's a, kings tend to be uh, narcissistic and involved with their own imaginations and dreams for their empires, and he does not envision uh, these Israelites growing anymore. And so... What's interesting about these stories, so what we have is we really have three small stories right here. And here's the, the first one is oppression, treat them cruelly, wear them out. That's kind of phase one of Pharaoh's cruelty. Then phase two is get the midwives in, involved in this. And as the child is being born, if the child is a boy, take him away and kill him. That's phase two of this cruelty. And then phase three is sort of a command that goes, most likely they, the scholars think this went to his, his commanding, his generals, his military guards. Look, when you hear about a birth uh, from one of these Hebrew women, when you hear about perhaps even a, a, a circumcision going on, something like that, when you hear about birth happening in a home, a child being born, you go and grab that baby boy and you throw him in the Nile. So phase one, oppression, 
beat them down, wear them out. Phase two, midwives, you be there. And then phase three is just throw the, these, these boys in the Nile. Whoa, Exodus just starts. Whoa, you're you caught right into this. Wow, I, you know, give me some time here. Is this, let, let this story sort of get developed. It's very quick, very to the point. And here's what's going on. Moses, we know that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. And Moses is writing this account. He has, obviously has other stories because here's a story about him as a baby. So he has other sources where he's getting his ideas. But he is writing under the inspiration of God, and he's writing these stories down. And he wrote the book of Genesis. And his first audience was those who were actually delivered out of Egypt. Out, they were part of the Exodus, that first generation. And scholars believe that he wrote Genesis for them so they would know who are we? Where did, where did we come from? What's the problem with mankind? Where are we going? All those stories in the book of Genesis are shaped for that first generation that came out of the Exodus. Moses is, a, is an author that God uses. He has a heart for his people, and he wants to, them to know where they are going, where they're from. It's really exciting. Now, what's very interesting is that in the book of Exodus, we learn who the audience is that Moses is writing to. A lot of times we, as, as people in our day and age, we sort of think the Bible sort of fell out of the sky. It kind of like, I don't know, uh, who is this? Oh, Crossway. Crossway, just, it just, boom, landed on a rock, and it came in bonded leather. It, it, it didn't, didn't actually happen that way. The Bible actually was written in phases, and, and the Pentateuch was written in phases. And so Mo- Moses is writing down this account. And we learn that in Exodus 16, we learn that the crowd who first heard this or read this was actually the crowd that was being, receiving the manna that was falling from the sky. And they were the crowd that was walking around for 40 years in the wilderness. You can read about it in, in Exodus 16. There's a reference to the idea that for 40 years the manna was providing them food in the wilderness. Well, wait a minute. Now, that would be the second generation. You realize that God did not allow the first generation to go into the land of Canaan because they rebelled, and the account is given for you in Numbers 13. And so Moses is taking these stories, and he's writing them because they have a particular purpose for his audience and his agenda. He knows their needs, and they need to know these particular stories. So Moses wrote these first five books and had a design and a purpose for them. So Exodus starts off with this king who is threatening uh, destruction of children, and he starts off with phase one of just wear them out, wear them out. The idea is that you've worked so, so hard, you've been oppressed, that you don't care about kids, you don't care about family, you are just broken, broken down. And then, uh, in fact, the word ruthlessly is repeated several times in Exodus chapter 1. He is a ruthless, ruthless person. Phase 2, he he commences a plan of infanticide, killing these sons, um, pulling them away from their mothers before they can be be hung, be, be clutched to by their mothers. And, uh, but this interesting is that 
there are two uh, people who are brought up here. These are the midwives. Actually, their, their names are mentioned, and they are brought up, and they are told uh, by the Pharaoh, look, you, you get your, your union of midwives. You get the whole, everybody organized. And in many ways, they may have been union bosses, really. There may have been some kind of system of, of uh, uh, a, uh, an organization of, of midwives. And these ladies were the, the heads of the program. And, uh, and so they're told, look, you, you've got to kill the, the, the male babies. And they defy the king. They don't let it happen. They come up with this really lame uh, answer. Did you, some of you giggled when, you, when, you, when uh, Jason was reading that. And the midwives, the, the pharaoh comes, and the midwives, in verse 19, they say, why, why, why have you let the male children live? And they say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. The, the Hebrew women are, are like buff mamas. You know, they're just, they're tough. They're, they're, you know, they're in shape. And you Egyptian women are like, you know, they're opulent, and you, you're, you're wealthy, and you, you, you just don't work out. And, uh, you know, and so they come up with this outlandish thing. And then, um, and so... Now, the original audience, now let's imagine you and I, we're, we're, we're the original audience, and we hear this for the first time. And we've heard maybe great, crazy things about this. I mean, wonderfully magnificent things about this pharaoh, how powerful he was, how, what a great king he was. But you read this story, and you say, man, he's kind of a buffoon. He's, really, he's not that bright. I mean, he's powerful, but he's not smart. And so you, you start getting into the idea that there's irony and there's humor, and there's a reason why Moses has included this story God is in God does great reversals. The king can shout and, and command and demand and make his decrees, but all you need is, is a couple of little people, a couple of little unknown people, and the whole idea can come crashing down. You just need one or two. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't that encourage them as they're about to go into the land of Canaan with all these giants? You know what? Even if even if you're outnumbered, you'll be okay. Do you see? God uses little people. That's kind of the, the message there. And these, these, um, these, little, these little children are allowed to live because God in his providence uh, has these women. And there's a key point where it says, but the Hebrew, uh, excuse me, but the midwives, verse 17, there's a key word, but the midwives feared God. And whenever the state commands us to do what is forbidden in Scripture, we must resist. And this is the principle coming from here. You can see this throughout the Bible when a king has pronounced something that is uh, immoral, ungodly, blasphemous. You have like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in Daniel. The, the king says, look, bow down to this statue. And they said, uh, no, we will not. And they stand among thousands of the Babylonians who are bowing before. These three Hebrew boys stand and say they will not, trained to only bow to the living and true God. So throughout the Bible, you have a godly defiance. And, uh, and the, often we would refer to the state. The state is this, often becomes this grotesque, overly oversized, uh, supersized um, in, its, in its boundaries. It needs boundaries. And Christians are called to stand and resist the state wherever it has gone over the, its boundaries. And here we have an example. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian who was hired by the Romans, 
uh, he writes of this account, and he says, look, what was happening is that the pharaoh had been told by a kind of magi or a wise man that the pharaoh had been told, hey, a redeemer has been born, Uh, one who's going to deliver these people and going to make you look foolish and diminish the glory of Egypt. And that's what Josephus says. We're not sure where he got his ideas. But suddenly now there's phase three, and that is uh, Pharaoh's men toss these, uh, these baby boys into the Nile. Now, we move into the birth narrative of Moses. In verse 1 of chapter 2, uh, we have two Levite people. They're of the tribe of Levi. Uh, they, they find each other, and they get married. Um, and now Moses is writing about his mother. And in verse 2, all he does is refer to, he just refers to her as the woman. Now, he, I think he was raised better than that. But he, he just refers to her as the woman. Now, she actually has a name. Uh, her name is actually recorded in Exodus 6.20, and uh, her name is Jochebed. So there she is. That's, his, that's Moses' mother. And uh, she keeps Moses around for three months, and she can't, he's getting bigger. She can't hide him anymore. And so she comes up with this plan to put him in a basket, waterproofs it. you familiar, perhaps, your uh, flannel graph stories, or you, know, you remember your Sunday school lessons, right? Okay, so we have the baby Moses in a basket. And uh, he is placed in the Nile among the reeds. We really don't have a picture of, of Moses sort of floating along the rapids or something like that, right? But he is there, and she puts him. Some mothers here, imagine this, seriously. She puts her own son in this basket. She loves her son, and she puts him in that dangerous situation. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and he is left there floating above the, the Nile there, floating in that water, left. She has to leave him. Did she know that the, the, the Pharaoh's family hung around in these parts? Perhaps she did. Just imagine that, leaving her own son. to walk away, trusting in the providence of God, leaving her child. Very profound. And uh, she, in, in, in one way, she obeys crazy Pharaoh. And if, if she had been... Uh, asked by a, an officer, I hear you've had a son. Did you, did you put him in the Nile? She said, I did. <laughs> I did. It, don't underestimate how clever little people have to be. How clever they need to be. So what's fascinating now is that the daughter of Pharaoh finds the basket and in fact, Moses' uh, sister, Miriam, who is older, about 15 years older, she's, she's a teenager, she's standing around, and she comes into the picture and assists the process whereby the baby Moses will become part of Pharaoh's own family and eventually adopted as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. In a sense, he becomes a son of the Pharaoh himself. Now... Is there a grin coming over your face a little bit? You're on the edge of Canaan. You're about to go into the land that God promised Abraham. We're all part of, we're all hearing this story. You know that God works in amazing and mysterious ways. And the resources of Pharaoh himself are going to be used to bring up the one who will deliver and defy, deliver 
God's people from Egypt and defy the Pharaoh himself. So Moses was not killed through the Nile, but he was drawn out of it. Three reversals. Three reversals. Phase one, oppressed them. They kept multiplying. Uh, Phase two, midwives kill the baby boys. No, Egyptian women are are not like these women, and we can't get there and all that. Right? So then, then phase three, the reversal is this. A baby boy is born, insignificant event in all that's going on, but he is now tucked in safely at night in the Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh is a buffoon, and he wants, Moses wants his original audience to know that. And then here's something very important. The children of Israel were not an easy crowd to work with. And those of you who you know that they rebelled and, and they rose up against Moses a number of times. And um, when, they got to the, when they got close enough to send in spies, uh, two spies came back, Caleb and Joshua, that came back with a good report, and the ten came back and said, man, we're getting slaughtered, it's terrible. And then the people rose up at that moment and said, aha, you've always planned to kill us in the wilderness. They rose up against Moses when they didn't have the leeks and the garlic and the onion of Egypt, and they complained bitterly about the food, and then God brought manna to sustain them. But they were after Moses. And here's what they suspected. You were raised in Pharaoh's household. This may be one big, sick plot. You gather us all together, do that Red Sea thing, then you bring us out in the wilderness to kill us. You, you're a son of the Pharaoh. You know his ways. You are part of the plot. Why do we have Exodus 2? Moses didn't choose this. Moses was there because of the providence of God. Moses is not a conniving leader of being used by Pharaoh. He is the son who was adopted by Pharaoh, but God made sure he was there. So Moses' intention here is to give his audience a reason for why he was in the situation he was in. Now, let's talk a bit about little, no little people. Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote a book called No Little People. He was an influential uh, theologian and pastor in the 70s, uh, and, he, and a lot of people were reading his stuff. It's all very, very good stuff. And he wrote a book called No Little People, and it tells us that in God's providence, there, there are no little people, and God uses uh, believers who are in their place of work and in their place in their neighborhoods. God has a plan for us, and God in his providence uses nobodies all the time. Uh, we often think that we are nobodies. We often think that we, uh, we need to become great or become significant, right, um, in order to become someone. I grew up in the shadow of Hollywood growing up. You have to become great. You have to become someone really, really special and important. Otherwise, you're a nobody. Exodus starts off with the story of people who are nobodies, and they are faithful in the time in which God calls them to serve his purposes. They cleverly resist tyranny. These are women who stand up against the dehumanizing and life-destroying force of Pharaoh. Someone once said that God gave women to men to make them human. 
Someone, Egypt is a powerhouse nation of the world. And yet these faithful women are used by God to show that Egypt is not that smart. And Egypt was somewhat advanced, but it was not civilized. They remember the wonder of birth, and they remember the miracle of birth. Children are not just objects for the state to discard. They are precious. They are made in the image of God. In a book entitled The Mystery of Life in Children's Literature, author Mitchell Calpagian writes this, quote, the, death, the culture of death profanes everything, degrading and cheapening all of life's mysteries, from the miracle of birth to the magic of childhood to the sublimity of love to the sanctity of the home to the mystery of nature to the wonder of divine providence to the secret of happiness to the beauty of art. The culture of death profanes everything. The story of Exodus starts with hope in the midst of tragic disorder. This is what kingdoms become without the grace of God. Tragic disorder. And yet in the book of Exodus, what we're going to find is God himself is going to place himself right in the midst of this kind of disorder. He's going to come and he's going to travel with his people. He's going to guide them through the Red Sea and he will promise to be with them and he will be with them forever. He is going to reverse the curse when man was banished from God's presence in the garden. Now we sort of habituated to this. Yeah, I can't see God. and yeah, I'm, just, I'm sort of used to this life outside the garden, right? God, the Bible, the trajectory of the Bible, the whole creation, fall, redemption, is to bring God back in the center of man's life. And God intends to do that in the book of Exodus. When they camp in the wilderness, he will be in the midst of them. He will be central, and he will restore what is sacred. And one of his laws will say, you shall not murder. In fact, the restoration of the sacred is the key to the full restoration of mankind. In these accounts, we are introduced to the Nile. Egypt could not have become the nation it was without the Nile. When Moses is grown, he will be authorized and called of God to deliver God's people. In the first plague, the true and living God will go after the Nile, and he will make the Nile reveal what the Egyptians had made it, a place of death. He will make them smell death, taste death, experience death, they had become hardened to it. They didn't care about it anymore. He made them live it out. It's right in front of you. This is what you've made of the Nile. My good river. And Moses will be the one who had been rescued from the Nile. And he comes back to it. And he raises his staff in the sight of Pharaoh and all his servants. And he raises his staff over the Nile, Exodus 7.20. And all the water is turned to blood. I like to think of God delivered his people with a stick. The Nile is the target of God's miracles. Pharaoh and all his servants used the Nile as a destruction place. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for basket is the same word used in Genesis 6 for the ark. Moses' mother made a small ark for her son. He floated above the realm of death.
In the birth of Moses, the plan of redemption reaches a new stage. God will make a people for himself who are to be a light to the nations and reverse this kind of craziness. In Moses, in a sense, he rested above the realm of death. He's floating above the realm of death. But the final Moses, Jesus Christ, does not rest above the realm of death. He doesn't stay above it. He enters into the realm itself. He enters right into it. What God would not require of Moses' mother, he will require of himself. In the Egyptian artifacts, they have recovered just how the Egyptians thought of the Nile. The Nile, with its tributaries, proved almost impossible for invading nations to figure out. So Egypt was protected. But the Nile was a place you needed to pass over lest you die. In our redemption, Moses, our Moses, our final Moses, did not pass over the place of death. He selflessly gave himself to the place of death that we might never experience it. Egypt cannot see itself as a pro-death culture, but it is. It has nothing to repent of, and represented in Pharaoh, is offended at the idea that it cannot oppress people at will. That same spirit was embodied in Rome, and surprisingly embodied in the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They thought they, would be, they could be free to kill Jesus because they had better goals and better aims in mind for their societies, for their civilizations. These subtexts, these small little stories in Exodus 1 and 2, is really where God is answering the question, who cares for the helpless? In that sentiment, that thought is finally manifested and is lived out in living color as Jesus is on the cross. The Son of God was willing to become a little person, easily discarded in the face of corrupting power, in order to show the Father's love that there are no little people. Jesus enters into the realm of death itself, and he is the Moshe, the one who is drawn out, who rises out of death in his resurrection. This, then, is the final and great reversal. His very body becomes the new ark, and in him you will never descend into the realm of death again. Do you believe this? This is your story. In the language of Tolkien expressed in Sam Wise's ponderings, what sort of story have you fallen into? Do you think it is some random chance you are here today? Do you live in a random universe filled with little people who have no final significance? Not true. What is it that people do who get this story? What are they like? Who, who, what do they become? How do they see themselves in light of God's deep beauty and rescue and his goodness? What do they say to him? John Wesley wrote this, and it was his prayer of covenant to God. Listen to these words as we close. John Wesley, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put thou to what thou wilt. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. 
Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low by thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it, and the covenant which I made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. John Wesley. Let's pray. Father, we yield to us our time and our lives. Father, we would ask that you'd humble our pride, that we would know that you do not discard little people, that we would be used of you. Father, that we would know that you've given us our moments, this precious time in our lives, that we can be servants of yours. Father, we thank you for the final Moses who entered into the realm of death and was raised and was drawn out for us. We thank you that he lives now and intercedes for us. He's not ashamed of us. He's the king, and he subdues his people to himself. Thank you for your power. Show us your glory. Help us serve you this week. Help us not be burdened with ourselves, but relieved and loving you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.